the biggest learning curve I had doing Grubhub was how to sell. How do you get to the restaurateur? How do you manage a lead pipeline? How do you consistently execute the same pitch over and over and then iterate on that pitch? Because to me, I wanted to have a conversation with someone and it felt awkward to have the same series of words coming out of my mouth. But when that's the optimal series of words to close a sale, you got to do that day in and day out on the phone a hundred times a day, not just to sell you know, independent restaurants, but in a boardroom, you're pitching your directors every time you're proposing a new investment to raising capital, you're selling. Like it's the definition of selling, like that's business. Hello, and welcome to the Polsky Center's Where Are They Now podcast. I'm Colin Keeley, and we catch up with founders from Chicago Boost New Venture Challenge on this show. Join us as we dive into their entrepreneurial journeys and get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success. This week, we have Matt Maloney interviewed by Mark Tebby. Matt is a co-founder and CEO of Grubhub, which pioneered online ordering for restaurants for pickup and delivery. Matt has taken Grubhub from not initially making it into the New Venture Challenge to the multi-billion dollar public company that it is today. Mark Tebby is a professor of entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth and has been a longtime judge and mentor of the New Venture Challenge. Without further ado, here's Matt Maloney and Mark Tebby. Thanks for coming, everyone. My name is Mark Tebby, professor of entrepreneurship over at Booth. And I'm here today with Matt Maloney, the founder and CEO of Grubhub and winner of the 2006 MVC and who's basically become the poster boy of MVC. It's hard to talk about MVC without talking about Matt Maloney and Grubhub. Matt, thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the accolades. So what I'd love to talk about, I mean, your path into the MVC was an interesting one, but let's set the text. Let's go back a little bit on the background yourself. Let's talk about, you're not originally from Chicago. You actually grew up in, I think, Michigan. What did you do before you ever got to Booth? Tell us a little bit about your early days. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I moved to Chicago actually after graduating from Michigan State and I uh, got a job. I was actually working at the University of Chicago, interestingly, in the hospital group. And I was doing computerized detection and diagnosis of cancer uh, at the Kurt Rossman Laboratories, which is a deep track that uh, most people don't, don't know about. But that was, you know, I'll call it 98. And then 99, when the first internet bubble was really hitting hard. I happened to walk to work through a job fair, which I think was held at Ida Noids at the time before the renovation. And then I just, I walked past this, the apartments.com booth and the guy there, you know, I, I learned later he was, he was one of the sales guys, but he, he hooked me in with a, you know, started talking about the internet and what all it could do. And I was already in computers. I was actually getting my master's in, in comp sci at the time at the university. And, uh, I said, this sounds pretty fun. So I, I jumped over to apartments.com and that's why I started building the technology group, went through the bubble. Uh, that's where I met uh, my Grubhub co-founder, Mike Evans, and we both worked there together. And then in that experience, you know, basically we came up with Grub. And so we, we were playing around building the MVP as, as we'd call it now, really kind of iterating on different concepts. And then to condense a very long story, we realized we had something and I needed, I, I recognized my faults and I knew I didn't know how to run a business. You know, I was very naive, uh, I would say now, and thought, well, I should go to B school because isn't that where you learn how to run a business? And so that was my path to Booth. And once I was at Booth, obviously I found out about the New Venture Challenge 
entered that. Obviously, it was it was a straight shot, won that, and then you know the rest of the story was easy. So yeah, it was it was really interesting. My my path to B school really was because of Grub and trying to better understand how to build, grow, and manage a business that I thought had a lot of potential. All right, so let's dig into this a little bit because you summarized it in a very nice way. But let's dig a little deeper. Because, I mean, when we talk about Grub and the growth story of Grub everywhere we see you, whether it's written up in magazines or on CNBC or whatever, you're like the proverbial entrepreneur. Got an idea, roll up your sleeves, built a business, taken it public, and just, you know, everything's up and to the right. But when you were growing up, did you think you wanted to be an entrepreneur? No. No, I, I have no, I think I, I wanted to be a doctor. In fact, I, I was denied admission to medical school multiple years in a row. So there's a, there's a long history of, of failure in my past before this actually hit. But you ended up going to Michigan State, getting a computer science degree, coming to Chicago and working in the hospital while getting your master's in computer science. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you saw yourself more as, as a technology guy who just wanted to get stuff done. So how does a technology guy get the idea to do something like Grubhub? I mean, you were working at apartments.com at the time. How did it come to you? So I was really deep in geographic algorithms, uh, trying to find rental apartments. So at the time, we was in the rental real estate business. We had, we had brand stuff and we were doing more resale, a precursor to ultimately uh, an industry that would be dominated by Zillow. And so I was thinking a lot about Algorithms that categorized data and was able to do data lookups based on proximity. And so there was a few ideas we were bouncing around. Uh, this was Mike and I, because um, Mike was a, a supreme technologist, uh, came out of MIT uh, in the middle of the bubble. We hired him on a, at apartments, just, just an awesome all around uh, co-founder. And then we were bouncing a couple ideas. And, and I just said one day, I'm like, no, the data that we're working on has to be permanent. Like it has to be concrete. It can't be flexible data. It has to be consistent and it has to have a way to algorithmically look it up. And it needs to be something that hasn't been categorized before. And it has to be something that's important to a normal person multiple times a week. That was the eureka moment when those kind of levers just all lined up. I said, like, pick up delivery boundaries. I mean, you got to remember, this is 2003, 2004. Back then, I mean, I vividly remember opening the telephone book to the restaurant section. Remember, it was I had a, had a red rim on the pages, and you'd open up to a pizza shop, and you'd look at a map of the, the, the streets it delivered to, and you'd say, oh, I'm in their delivery area, and you'd call them. And that was what delivery was. And so I thought, well, wait, I can do that. I can polygon the delivery boundaries. I can put it in a database. I know how to dynamically look that up. I can actually present a Google-like search results form to any consumer looking to get delivery food. And that was where this all came from. In 2003, Google had recently had their um, AdWords hit. You know, they were making a ton of money. And I thought, well, you know, a, a subscription, you know, a SaaS model on a, on a delivery boundary advertising service. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I lived in Lakeview at the time. That would surely work in Lakeview. So where else would it work? And so that was, that was the, the moment where we thought, wow, this could be cool because consumers like, like me would use it and restaurants would probably be willing to pay for it if it would build their business. And so that's when we started focusing in on the idea 
and start building out. And Mike was, um, Mike, we were both working at the time. Mike was building at nights and weekends. And he was a way better programmer than I was. And so I kind of let him do that. And I was the one collecting data, calling the restaurants, trying to get their information. And, you know, it's um, trying to organize unorganized information from people who don't really want to be organized uh, was definitely a challenge. And so, you know, it was calling restaurants hours and hours like, hey, where do you deliver to? Oh, where, where are you? Well, yeah, I just want to know where you deliver to. Well, why? Are you the city? Are you trying to tax me? No, no, no. I'm trying to help you out. I'm trying to sell more pizza for you. Oh, I don't know about that. So you'd call, you'd be like, hey, I'm up on Foster. You can deliver me? No, we only deliver to, to Armitage. Oh, okay. Okay, perfect. Thanks, man. You know, and like, it's just a lot of trial and error figuring that out. And then, uh, so yeah, that's how we built the initial database, literally focused on, on Lakeview. That was where the initial Grubhub was. And then we expanded down to the loop, farther up north, farther west, and then, then down, uh, obviously, to Hyde Park when, you know, when this thing started moving and I was in the New Venture Challenge. And for people who weren't that rolled up in technology at the time, back in 2003, 2004, Google Maps didn't even exist yet. So you were creating this own mapping kind of layer for yourself. And so would someone would just type in like their address and find out what food they could eat. So I remember the day that Google Maps launched because it was so much better for my business. Uh, and it sucked because you, they have eventually put you know pricing model around it. But initially it was free. But before that, we'd use uh, geographic mapping uh, software that you'd buy off the shelf and you have to cut maps and you have different maps for different areas. It was a complete pain. But then when we got Google Maps, actually, it wasn't just the lookup. That was easier. It was the data entry on the back end that was tons easier. I mean, I used to have to do an unlimited string of, of street names, you know, to define the polygon and then import that into a database in order, because you had to overlay on a traffic map because there's no other, there's no other geo system to underpin. So when Google Maps came out, you could click to get a polygon and it would enter in the area inside the curve. It, it was like, game-changing for data entry for Grubhub. It was fantastic. So it comes along, you basically start building out this business and you're calling around to restaurants, building out their polygons, even if they didn't have them. And you've got this database and you start saying, now I need to get, basically start making some money. So how do you find your first customer? Yeah, I mean, it's just pounding on doors. I mean, it's amazing how much work it was. It's not shocking that restaurants were like the last holdout of technology. When we were doing this in 2004, think about it, the, the first bubble had, had came and gone. By 2007, you know, you were doing all the social media stuff. You were, you know, locally in Chicago, FeedBurner was a big deal and that was all RSS feeds. It took a long time for restaurants to really get online. And even now, it's not a walk in the park. There are multiple layers in restaurants that they put in place on purpose to block sales. They get hit up every single day for linens, for plates, for soaps, for you know, new distributors, new suppliers. And so to figure out how to walk into a restaurant and sell a restaurateur, we learned quickly, you have to walk in the back door. You got to go talk to the cooks who are actually working because no other salespeople were doing that. You had to walk in the back door and say, hey, you know, I, I want to talk to you guys about, or I want to talk to, to whoever's, hear about selling more food. I got this, I got this whole thing. I'm selling a lot of food online. I want to see if you guys are interested in it. And, um, you know, the pitch of a hundred bucks a month for a, for enhanced listing, it was, you know, awful, 
Like it just didn't work at all. And so this is why we changed to online ordering. So we innovated online ordering as a way to justify the sale to restaurants, which is kind of weird if you think about it you know, now, because now you know, all of our orders are, are online. Their digital orders are like, that's what you think about with third-party platforms. So there was a whole bunch of like justification uh, in order to say, you know, you only pay me a dime when I make you a dollar. That became like the sales pitch, the whole $100 a month for an enhanced listing. Like nobody, nobody cared about that. But to be able to say, you pay me a dime when I make you a dollar and I can justify every order, that was like a big deal. That's when restaurants started saying, yeah, I'll totally do that. And then you start getting a bunch of yeses. And the, the other thing that does, which is nuanced, but it's really important, it changes the speed at which you can grow. You're not limited by the number of restaurants you sign up because on a SaaS model at hundred bucks a month, the revenue is bound by the number of restaurants you have paying you in any given month. By taking a percent commission, you're pivoting your business model to be capturing a percentage of the sales driven by consumers. So then you can really focus on your advertising to consumers and trying to increase the basket size and increasing the repeat rate and increasing the new customers and not necessarily the number of restaurants. They, you, you clearly need more restaurants to have a better platform, but your revenue is, is only limited by the amount you can sell. And that was, that unlock, the un unlock to go from phone orders to online orders released us to grow uh, both from revenue and also a, a supply network perspective. So you were constantly tweaking and pivoting your model along the way. And you were at the time, the primary salesperson, you're still working in apartments you were selling or at this point had you decided I'm, I'm done. I'm going to just focus on Grubhub. I was definitely still working when I was collecting data. I was definitely still working when uh, we got our first check. That was, uh, I've told this story a few times. It was charming walk uh, over I think it was on Wabash behind the, the Hilton downtown, uh, which has since burned down and I believe rebranded as um, uh, Tamarind. Uh, although I'm not sure if that's still there either. If anyone wants to go there, that was it. I sold the, uh, the bartender who happened to be, well, I thought he was a decision maker. So I, you know, I, I clearly had to have a beer in order to address his attention. So I finished that beer and he was looking at me like, you know, you're not done, are you? So I had to get another beer and, and, and this isn't even like a funny justification for drinking during the day. It was, he's looking at me like, I'm not listening to you unless you're going to keep ordering a beer. You're sitting at my bar taking a spot. So I was like, fine. So I got through the whole thing and he's like, you know what? This is a pretty good idea, but we're going to have to go talk to my mom because she makes the decisions. And I was like, oh my God, come on. I just spent an hour pitching you. This is our first sale. Uh, I ended up convincing his mom as well, who gave us our first check. And shortly thereafter is when we um, we really started to accelerate. I think Mike quit first, but I I was a little bit a little bit later. Well, when you got that first check, had you even incorporated yet, or what did you do with your first check? We definitely weren't legal for a while. I don't think we actually formally incorporated until after we won the new venture challenge, and we had we had to deposit that check is what actually did it. Although we did have to have a bank account for that first check. Although I think I might have just cashed that check and, and put it in my own account. I'm not, I'm not sure. It was everything so squishy back then at the very beginning, you know, because you're, you've been working a lot. You're really invested personally, but there's no, there's no cash going through and there's no employees. You don't have to do payroll. You don't have insurance. You don't have, you don't have to have an office. It's all the, the, 
those aspects of running a business that is um, you're not expecting. Like you think, hey, I have a good idea, I execute on it, you know, success is next. And it's like there are a million roadblocks to even like a modest small business. I, I really like I have a lot of empathy for restaurants because they deal with all this shit. And like, they don't have this infinitely scalable global internet business. Like they, they're addressing the needs of their, their neighbors. And it's, it just really is, it's challenging. So I'm not sure what we do with that first check, but I, I remember the check. It was a very big deal. Uh, and that's when I started really, I think that's when I, I filled out my, my booth application actually. Well, all right. So yeah, I mean, you shifted at that point from subscriptions to transactions, started getting more opportunities with the restaurants and you realize I got to learn how to run a business. So you applied to Booth. Why? To learn how to run a business. I mean, isn't it obvious? That's what business school is for. It's called business school, Mark. This is where you learn to run a business. I went to business school. Remember, I was, I took no business classes in undergrad. I had no idea what I was doing. My first three classes, and you should look this up. I think it was, um, well, uh, besides the ones you have to take, I think you have to take uh, economics, but I took managerial accounting way sooner than I should have. I took corporate tax strategy. I mean, I am a pragmatist. I was trying to understand how to literally run the business. I thought with tax strategy, I would be able to understand how to, how to do my taxes for Grub because that's what I needed to do. That's what I was there for. And ironically, which by the way, that is not a class for a small business owner. That is a very detailed consultant slash uh, legal level class. However, I did learn about reverse triangle mergers, which I uh, thus executed in the seamless transaction. And now we're executing it again, being acquired by Just Eat Takeaway. It's the exact same model. So I, I understand that stuff perfectly. So I'm, I'm super helpful there. So you're in both, you're taking these tax and accounting classes, but yet you're running a business on the side and you came to Booth to run this business. How did you end up at the MVC? I'm pretty sure that Kaplan suggested I did. Kaplan, Steve Kaplan. I love Steve. He's fantastic. But I remember he was the head of the, uh, I think it was the Polsky Entrepreneurship Center back then. This would have been like 05, 06. And I went to see him um, because here I was a new student taking all the appropriate uh, learning to run a business classes. And I went to him as the head of the entrepreneurial program. I said, Hey, I've got this idea. I'm running it. You know, in my head, uh, this was a big deal, right? I mean, uh, we had quit our jobs. I was going to business school. This is the next big thing. And I, I went to ask his advice on how to, how to run this business. And he said, um, well, you should enter in the, in the new venture challenge. This is, this is what you do with business ideas. And I said, great. So I entered in the new venture challenge and he promptly uh, rejected my submission uh, unceremoniously. And, and I, uh, so I went back to him like, dude, like, come on, this is an actual business. This isn't like a business. This is called a business plan competition, but I'm running the business. We have real revenues. This is, this is, I mean, I'm sure it was, I don't remember, you know, hundred bucks a month or so. We probably had one customer at the time. And then I think he just appreciated my passion. I just, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, come on. Like, and so uh, through my my groveling and begging, he did he did ultimately let me in the in the program, and so uh, yeah, so it, it was the program was the best thing for Grubhub for sure, like no question. And so 
you get in the MVC, and it, a lot of students have said it's transformational. I mean, it's the best, you just acknowledge it's the best thing ever. When you got in there, how did you sum up this super technical, doing polygons kind of menu mapping system and explain it to the judges in the MVC? How'd your first presentation go? Yeah, not well. I think this is why it was so valuable. I think, you know, after a lot of reflection on the new venture challenge, I think it means something different to everyone. It brings something sharpening to every business plan that goes through the process because it really is a thorough vetting of the idea of the execution. And it's not just like a technical review or a marketing review or a finance review. I mean, it really emulates a venture process. It, it, it emulates raising money. And, and when you're raising money, you're pitching investors, you're asking them to you know, put their name and their dollars behind you. And they, they poke all kinds of holes in this. And so I think the process of getting real investors and um, entrepreneurs to vet and poke holes in these models, I think it, it's really effective. And so for us, you're exactly right. We had the technology down. We had a working prototype. We had paying customers. We had no idea how to talk about it at all. I mean, I've said it a couple of times, no business experience, none. Like it took me an hour and a half to pitch a, a bartender to give me a hundred bucks a month. I mean, it, like talk about ineffective use of time. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit I, I had a, a bit of an ego at the time also. I mean, I, I was in with the greatest business school in the country. I think it was rated number one in the country the year before. I had a real business. I was running a business. I was technically the CEO of a company in business school. Like, come on. So we got up and it was like, look at our business. It's the next evolution of the internet. Crown me now. Like, come on. And, and so like, it fell flat. Every, you could tell midway through the blank stairs, people were expecting unit model economics. They're expecting financial plan. What, what do you need to invest? What's the runway? What's the outcome? What's the next round? What's your marketing plan? What's your hiring plan? Like we weren't even doing a good job of explaining the technology and the product itself. And so I think afterwards, the advisors were kind of like, all right, Matt, I kind of see what you're saying, but like, you blew it. Like you, you didn't, you didn't communicate anything. And so I, um, somebody, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure who it was. I think it might've been Brent Hill, uh, who was a NVC advisor that year. He's now with uh, origin ventures actually, who ended up running our a round in 2007. Um, but Brent was like, this is actually something he was at Feedburner at the time, by the way. And Brent said, this is actually something you're, you're onto something real here. You need to go talk to every single one of these advisors because these are all smart people. And you need to have a conversation and ask them their advice on how to do better next time. And so we, I started that process talking to every single person. Uh, and it was really helpful talking to a marketer. I talked to JP Dubay for a while. He was a, he was a great help thinking through the data aspects of marketing. And so I, I had access to these like monstrous brains and they would focus for an hour. I talked to I actually talked to Austin Goolsby for a while about this too. I know he's an economist, but like different perspectives on the problem I'm solving and how do I quantify the, the opportunity? How do I pitch an actual uh, solution? How do I sell people on you know, an outcome? And so I was able to put together a much better presentation of what we we're trying to communicate. And that's what the new venture challenge was for us. And then I literally took that deck 
and pitched our Series A round. So you get in, you do the second presentation, you make it to the finals, but it seemed like from the first presentation to the second presentation, you totally simplified and clarified what Grub was. Not so much enamored with what it could be or what, it, but you really got into saying, you know, you, it seems like you simplified the message a lot. That, I mean, that's all it was. It wasn't, we didn't change the product. The opportunity didn't change. The solution didn't change. It was completely about how did I go about communicating to potential investors the opportunity, the solution, and the potential payout. And by doing that, it was a translation exercise from you know, non-structured non information in my brain to something that others who were you know, super smart were expecting to hear. So you, you make it to the finals. And back then we were, I think we were giving away 50 or $75,000 of prize money to the teams and you crushed the presentation. But a lot of people don't recognize, did you win the MVC or did you co-win the MVC? You know, why do you have to bring that up? Do you know that's still a sore subject? We co-won the New Venture Challenge that year. It was a very weird dynamic because we had the clearly superior opportunity and presentation, and they brought in an outside CEO to actually do the pitch, which was highly irritating to me. Uh, and then they ended up co-winning. So yeah, I think the prize money was 50 grand. And so we got 25,000 of that. Uh, but that was, that was a lot of money. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. Like it, it was a big deal. And it allowed us to run the summer of 2006 and start to buy uh, CTA ads. And so then we really saw our traffic start to spike. And by the summer of 2006, we were back to break even, uh, making our own money with myself on payroll. Mike was on payroll. I think we had two other, maybe three other employees at that time. So it really helped us bootstrap into the next stage. And we continue to execute, really building out Chicago. And we closed our A round in um, fall of 2007 after expanding to San Francisco. I remember one of the things at your presentation, you were convinced that you basically were looking at your financials. You were going to go from like $350 of marketing to like 10,000 of marketing, like in the next month. But you really thought you only needed about 1.7 million to actually build the business and be profitable. But you went out and you looked for a Series A. And you come out, you, you win the MVC in June of 06. When did you close your Series A? It was November of 07. Look, we, we experienced, I had to lay off probably 50, maybe 75 people in uh, 99 at apartments. So like we had experienced this whole bubble economy where um, yeah, it, was, it was really funny. At apartments, I remember meeting this guy who is taking a hiatus from his uh, PhD in mathematics, just theoretical math at U of C. And I don't think he even knew how to code, uh, but they hired him because you, know, you were hiring anyone that had an advanced degree, especially in, in any STEM related uh, field. And then you know, when, the, when the carpets pulled out from under you, you got to lay everyone off. So we were religious about covering our costs uh, and not having to lay anyone off. You know, we would spend only the excess of what we made the month before after paying payroll. And so, you know, we were trading speed of growth for security of team because we really didn't know 
anything. Like we didn't know what to expect. We were in Chicago. It wasn't the Valley. It didn't have this culture of raise as much money as possible, you know, and throw it all against the wall. And, and I'm glad in hindsight, we didn't do that because it allowed us to iterate on multiple different uh, ways of doing the business. You know, the online ordering is one way, you know, there, there's a lot of products that we tested that, that didn't work, or we needed more time to figure out how to make this business work. Uh, and even now, you know, we're, we're really the only ones that have consistently been, you know, profitable for the whole time. I don't think there was, we went negative whenever we took money. So after the A round, we were negative for probably nine months or so, which was well, well planned out. And then after that, but yeah, that's, that's how we grew. But yet you were still also, while you were building the business, even after winning the MVC, you're still going to booth. When did you actually get your MBA? Yeah, I took the long course. So I think I read somewhere that, that they allowed you five years in the part-time program. And so I took, I took the entire time. Of course, afterwards, you know, I think Steve or somebody told me that, oh, for you, we would have made an exception, but I was like, whatever. I, I, I jammed in that last quarter just to, to make sure I could get out. Um, but it was great. I loved going to school uh, for business while running a business, especially running a business that really had no idea what it was doing from a business perspective. So, I mean, I learned marketing at Booth and I applied it every single day. So I remember being in Ann McGill's class, learning that it was far cheaper to reactivate past users, past customers, than gain a new customer. I was like, on the train on the way home, I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. I had never thought about that before. And so I, I called the team, I'm like, all right, we're going to start emailing everyone who's ever placed an order on Grub. And that was literally the beginning of our CRM programs, which you know now is industry standard. So you know, just things like that. We didn't have business people. Like we didn't bring in business people. I mean, I was I was clearly the business person. For, we didn't bring anyone in for a long time. We didn't bring a, a CMO or anything in. So it was great. The accounting classes weren't as applicable. We did have actual accountants uh, by this time, uh, but the but the rest of it uh, was really kind of kind of figure it out and use Booth as a, as a source of ideas. All right. So in November of 07, you basically get your A round done. You're doing great in Chicago and you decide you want to move to the next city. The next city you opened up in was where? So we opened up in San Francisco the fall of 07. Why? Well, we thought uh, that San Francisco was the super tech forward city and they would embrace this new idea you know, with open arms and it would be kind of the easiest second market. Well, you know, 13 years later now, San Francisco was never a good market for us. It just was never a good delivery market in general. In markets like Chicago, in New York, in Boston, uh, there were robust delivery ecosystems. And you got to remember back, back before 2014, we didn't do any delivery. So we were an advertising marketplace for restaurants that did delivery for themselves. We would take the order, place the order, they would prepare and deliver. And so uh, in San Francisco and specifically in, in Silicon Valley, there was no delivery. Like I think you could, get, you could get the big enterprise pizza chains and that's it. And so going to San Francisco, it was pretty frustrating. Uh, we went to Boston third. Boston was a, a much more receptive market, huge delivery 
ecosystem and uh, a super tech savvy community. And so that, that worked really well. And then uh, we went to New York and I was nervous about going to New York. New York is a, is a different beast. It's a giant market and it's an ecosystem all to its own. But in hindsight, and I've said this before, we should have gone to New York, you know, first, you know, even before Chicago, because if you've, you figure it out there, it really was helpful. So we, um, we went in and frankly, the longer you're in a market, the stronger the marketplace dynamic is. And so we went to New York a fourth, I guess it is in the spring of 2008. And, uh, and from there, uh, we really just started cranking out. I think that was about the time we took the benchmark money, or maybe that was this the B round. I'm not sure which, but that's about the time we really started the the national expansion. So even though your business plan said you needed 1.7 million dollars to be profitable, you ended up raising how much money before you went public? Uh, I think we were at like 85, roughly. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Your, your, your initial models are generally way, way off. I think for us, we were definitely projecting conservatively. And I think we used less than a million dollars to become profitable and you know actually launch New York. I think what you get with the extra money is you accelerate the, the outcome. So if you, if you continue to grow and you see the opportunity expand, what we saw consistently was, you know, our addressable market, you know, say it was X and we raised a bunch of money and we put that money to work. And then the addressable market became three X. Like that's what we kept seeing every round, the addressable market increased. And that's part of why in 2021 with two public competitors, three public companies in this space, as all the competition came, our growth rate really wasn't impacted because the addressable market itself continued to grow way beyond anything I could have ever projected. I think in, if you go back to that initial new venture challenge, I mean, I was calibrating on the, the amount of known pickup and delivery uh, from non-enterprise restaurants uh, domestically. And even that I think has gone up more than 20X post COVID. Uh, it's just incredible. The amount of industry growth. So, you know, a lot of people say, you know, pick an industry where you have a lot of elbow room to make mistakes. Well, you know, we nailed that one. That's no question. <laughs> so I mean, you're talking about how the MVC helped the business. If you could come back and teach a class at Booth, what would you teach? You know, I, I've been telling Booth for a long time that they need, they need a sales class. Uh, and I think they have one now, right? We have entrepreneurial selling. Yeah, um, Michael Alter. Teach us that. Oh, I love Michael. He's great. Yeah. So, you know, when I graduated, I think it was in 2010, I went to Steve Kaplan and, and I said, you guys need a sales class. I mean, Booth is an outstanding program, but it's, it's not a tactical program, which is ironically what I was there for. But what I learned was when you're doing your business, like the biggest learning curve I had doing Grubhub was how to sell. How do you get to the restaurant tour? How do you manage a lead pipeline? How do you consistently execute the same pitch over and over and then iterate on that pitch? And how do you do it the same every time? Because to me, I wanted to have a conversation with someone and it felt awkward to have the same series of words coming out of my mouth. But when that's the optimal series of words to close a sale, you got to do that. 
day in and day out on the phone a hundred times a day, that's selling, like that's business. And so that's what Booth needed to do. And I thought it was an extremely important skill, not just to sell, you know, independent restaurants, but in a boardroom, you're, you're pitching your directors every time you're, you're proposing a new investment to raising capital, you're selling, like it's the definition of selling. So like that, I think was, was critical. And I'm, I was so excited when I heard that Booth started that program, because it, it really is, it's a learnable skill, but it's, it's critically important. Yeah, I, I remember back when you were still in apartments and just going out and started selling, you thought it was a learnable skill. You went out and bought a book to really learn how to sell. <laughs> Did I? I might have. With Sales for Dummies. Yeah, that was, that was in our office. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, there was actually there was there's been two books that I uh, I've kept kind of on the desk, you know, and, and they're kind of tongue in cheek. But one is Sales for Dummies, and the other is uh, I think it's called Managing with Power. It was a book. I, it was one of the assigned reading books at, at Booth. I just love the title, and to have people kind of walk up to your desk to chat about something, and they see this like Managing with Power book on on your on your desk. That's great. So basically, as you come out of MVC, you. Use your money, you use a portion of your prize money to start buying ads, growing your market, going out, raising capital, going out and going to the West Coast, raising capital out there, and eventually going public. As you look back and think, I mean, because you came in so aspirational when you came to Booth, wanting to learn on one hand and do on the other, what were some of the difficult challenges you faced since you started the company? Man, I think it's all been difficult. It's like a satellite re-entering you know, Earth's atmosphere. It is this constant in-your-face friction every step of the way, and that changes every single year. You know, I've been doing this for 17 years-ish. Yeah, people are like, how are you still doing that? Like, people, you know, like to phase in or the just, you know, the early part or the late part. Well, it's super rare. It's super rare for someone to be the idea-sponsoring entrepreneur, take it through its growth stage, take it through its rapid growth stage, take it through this public stage and still be the CEO. But you have. No, I enjoy it because it's always different. It's just, it's, you're constantly problem solving and they're different problems. You have to learn a new, you know, decision-making paradigm each time you do it. Like going public was a complete education. I had no clue what was going on, right? You're relying on your lawyers and your bankers and the smart people have done it before, but you have to get up to speed because you have to do it. And then you, know, you get, you get through that. So, I mean, the, the most challenging part of this has been just consistently re, re-innovating for different situations. I mean, we were, you know, nobody knew of, of, of us. We had to build it. We had to sell it. We had to get investors. We had to expand it. Then we merged with Seamless. And then we had to go public. And then we had to figure out how to do delivery. I mean, for crying out loud, we're an advertising company. You want us to do logistic delivery on demand basis? where someone can order and be furious if their food isn't there an hour later anywhere in the country. Like, think about that challenge. Like you consistently innovate and it's just been fascinating. So it's been really hard, but it's been awesome to watch. So you've been the CEO the whole time. What's been your biggest leadership moment or test as a CEO? So I think there's, I'm gonna give you two answers and they're, they're different. Uh, the first is kind of more organizational because when people think about startups and you know high growth stories 
you think about the product market fit, you think about the expansion, you think about the innovation, you know, kind of the, the obvious stuff from the outside. But from the inside, the high growth is really difficult from an organizational management perspective. You got to remember, this is a team of people that work together. And it starts out really small. You know, five people expands to 10, 15, 50. You know, by the time you're 50 people, they don't all know me. So when you're in the same one or two rooms, you're, you're looking over your shoulder, providing real-time answers. People understand the way you're going to make decisions. And that is the company culture. And so when you expand past 50, you have to start thinking of culture as an abstracted element that you have to codify and then propagate because you can't have that interpersonal relationship that you had prior and you can't support the growth rate with less people. And so it's this really interesting process that happens to a company. You go from a, a tight band of people to an expanded group that continues to grow, that has less communication, it's more siloed. And that is just this constant tension. The more success you have, the larger your organization. So I think the hardest leadership moments for me were noticing during that trajectory when people that I liked and relied upon were not the right people for the company at that time. And so having those conversations are really, really hard because they trust you, you know, you like them, they like you, you go to each other's family functions, you hang out. And that is a very hard thing to deal with. Uh, and you just have to abstract yourself and just say, look, you're not the right person anymore. I'm really sorry. We're going to have to go in a different direction. And that was a, it's something that you aren't going to do naturally. And so someone has to tell you as a leader. And so when I learned that, and I realized there was a lot of kind of maintenance to do on the organization. It was really good for the company, but really hard as a leader. It's interesting. I'm trying to think about what it would be like. I mean, you came to Booth very tech strong with a great business that was just being founded, a few employees working for you. And we'll, let's say with a certain swagger. And then you basically live the dream to be a CEO from the founding CEO all the way to now the post-public, post-IPO CEO. Not many people have been able to do that. I mean, we have a lot of students who come and say, I'm going to be your next Grubhub. I want to be your next Matt Maloney. As you've experienced that, how have you changed? I think I have recognized how many mistakes I've made along the way. It, I mean, it's funny with 2020 hindsight, you do so many things different. No, no complaints at all. I think, you know, it's been an incredible run for sure. And it's still going. Like, I'm really excited for the next 17 years, you know, at the top rung of a, of a massive global delivery company. There's so many outstanding people that do things I could never do, even at the company that I currently lead. And I think that's the thing that's most eye-opening. You know, you, you kind of enter it doing everything, wearing every hat at the same time, thinking you're doing it pretty damn well because of your growth numbers and because of your investment. And, you know, you're buying into the whole narrative that you're giving me right now. And I, and I appreciate that. But like you recognize when you, when you hire really great people who do the same thing so much better that you could ever do, you realize you're actually like not that good at anything. 
because there's other people that are better at than you at everything. And so you, your job becomes, how do I, you know, attract, coordinate, and retain all of these experts? And how do I help them help me make this company even better? Instead of trying to do it all myself, it's how do I recognize the opportunity and get the right person in the right spot? And that's really what this is about. So every year, and as involved with the NBC, I hear students come in and say, I will be your next Grubhub. I mean, you, let's be clear. Grubhub is one of the poster childs of NBC. It's hard for us to talk about NBC and not talk about Grubhub. These students come in and say, I will be your next Grubhub. I will be the next Matt Maloney. Having been that Grubhub and having been that Matt Maloney, what advice do you have for these founders as they're young, just coming into the NBC, they're, they're at Booth? What advice do you have for them that they should walk away with before they even get into the NBC? I had some great advice early and I was describing Grubhub and I was really excited. And the guy looked at me and said, just do it. So just, just do it. Cause all this talking and all this nights and weekend, that's a hobby. That's what I call a hobby. If you don't quit your job and do it, then you're not an entrepreneur. It's not happening. And, and that was scary. That was very scary. But if you think about it, if you think about that, that is the right answer. And even if your idea is crummy, you have to do it because if you don't do it, you're not going to, you're not going to know if it was successful at all. And the act of doing it and removing the safety net of your job, that lights a fire like you would not believe. And so if it's not working, you feel that it's not working and you are going to struggle to make it work. And that's the difference between having an idea and doing it on nights and weekends and quitting your job and going all in and doing it. You will change your idea. There's no chance the idea that you have is the right idea. Grub, when I entered the MVC, was a very different idea than Grub post-MVC, Grub post-public, and Grub now. Very different companies. But you spend every day thinking about the largest, most pressing problems that you're addressing. And you change your business ideas, you change your strategies, you change your tactics, you change everything over the course of a year. I mean, people talk about, what is it? Changing the tires on the bus while it's rolling down the road. Well, that happens constantly. And so, yeah, your idea sucks. It's the best one you got. If you feel good about it, go for it. And then change it and don't be afraid to change it, but constantly change it and constantly optimize it. and it just starts with just do it. Stop talking about it. Some sage advice for one of NBC's best who's been able to show the world a great idea with tenacity and the ability to go do it has really made an amazing business that as much as we talk about NBC, we always are talking about Grubhub. I got to thank you for taking the time today to talk to us. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been fun reliving the, uh, the glory days that the scrappy startup stories. I mean, that's, those were a lot of fun. Those were scary and hard, but a lot of fun. All right. That is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks, and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care. Take care.